Wellspring podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. Tonight we will be in Mark chapter 7. It's one of my favorite stories for a variety of reasons, uh, mainly because I find this passage to be incredibly helpful, and it is helpful, as I said, in multiple ways. First, this passage is useful in helping us understand Jesus's relationship with the law or with the Torah, God's commands essentially, and his relationship there, because I think there oftentimes is a misunderstanding in that realm. Also, this passage is really good for helping us interpret other scriptures. Uh, here we learn about Jesus, but also we learn about how we can possibly interpret some other scriptures that might seem confusing because there are times when you're discussing God's commands versus man's traditions, and sometimes they seem to bleed over to each other. But what we walk through tonight, I hope, will be a help to you in learning that. And then thirdly, and I hope we have time to get to it, we'll see how quickly I can move through this. I think this passage, like many others, is going to be continually relevant, and it is definitely something that can be applied to our lives today. It can be applied to our lives individually, but it also can be applied to our lives as a body here at Wellspring and as a body across this nation and across the world. And so the first thing I do is uh, I'll read the entire passage uh, at least through the verses that we're going to cover, and then I'll bounce back and go through verse by verse, walk through the passage, and then hopefully we'll have some time to uh, get to some other examples in the scriptures, but also application for today. So Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah, Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So verses 1 through 3, we see right away a distinction between the religious leaders and the disciples of Jesus. We see that the Pharisees and the scribes come from Jerusalem, and they come and they see that his disciples are doing something that they don't agree with. They see 
that some of his disciples ate with hands that were, in their words, defiled, that is, unwashed. And then we learn also that the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And it is important that we are told that this is done according to the tradition of the elders, because that's where that distinction is going to come, where there are some things in this passage that are being discussed that are tradition, and then there are some things in this passage that are straight from God's law or God's Torah, but at times it seems like they're bleeding over on each other, but we have to be able to separate those two things, and that's exactly what Jesus is going to do here shortly. Um, but we must also understand that we're talking about more than just washing hands because, or even washing vessels. Um, we, we might read this in our day and age and think, well, why wouldn't they wash their hands? Uh, we, we tell all of our children and everyone that they need to wash their hands before they eat. So uh, why was Jesus and his disciples not washing their hands? But when you look at that, uh, that word and how that's translated, depending um, on what translation you're reading from. So, for example, here it says that they do not, in the ESV, that they do not wash their hands properly. Some of you might be reading from the NIV, and it says that they do not do the ceremonial washing and if you're reading from the New King James, it says that they do not wash in a special way. And so what do we have going on here? What's actually happening? The original Greek word there is pugme, and it literally means fist. Washing the hands while making a fist. And so we're not talking about a hygiene washing. We are talking about a ceremonial washing based off of the tradition of the elders, where they would make a fist and they would pour some water over their hands, and it was essentially a way of making their hands clean or not defiled, but not according to God's law, but more so according to the tradition of the elders. So that's what we have going on here, is the Pharisees see these disciples eating bread, but they see that they're not doing this ceremonial washing of the making of a fist and pouring water over their hand. Let's move on to verses 4 and 5. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And we learn that this tradition involves more than just hands, um, but... It involves vessels, as I mentioned before, but also we see that the leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, equate this, if they don't wash their hands, it's equal to if they were eating with unclean or defiled hands, and that's important when we think about these traditions being elevated to the same level as God's Torah. And so essentially what they're saying is you either follow this tradition or you're in sin. That's essentially what the Pharisees and scribes are asking Jesus. They are asking him, why do your disciples sin on purpose? Why are they doing this? Why are they not washing their hands? As all the Jews do, as everyone does, the passage tells us. And so what are these tradition of the elders? The tradition of the elders, paradosis ton prosperiton, most likely and this is from the Lexham Bible Dictionary, most likely a technical term referring to customs considered binding by Pharisees and some other Jews 
though not found in the Pentateuch. And that's an important distinction. These rules that the Pharisees are laying out, you read through the entire Old Testament, you're not going to find that command. You will not find that command in God's law that you have to make this fist and do this special washing before you eat food. It is something that has been created. It is man-made. It is a man-made tradition. Judaism traces this all the way back to Exodus 30, 19 through 20, where we read, And Aaron and his sons will wash their hands and their feet with it. When they come to the tent of assembly, they will wash with water so they do not die. Or when they approach the altar to serve by turning to smoke an offering made by fire to Yahweh. So you read that and you think, well, they were supposed to do some type of washing, but you just have to dig a little bit deeper. And you have to pay attention to who this law actually pertains to. Not every law in the Torah pertained to every single individual. For example, there were laws for kings. Well, if you're not a king, that law doesn't pertain to you. There were laws for women. If you're not a woman, that law doesn't pertain to you. This law specifically here, Aaron and his sons, that is the priesthood. This is a law specific to the priesthood. So if you're not a priest, this doesn't pertain to you. And that's why it says when they come to the tent of assembly, because the priests are the ones who would have been entering into there to do the work of God, not the general population. But what they did in first century Judaism is they transferred that to the regular people. They took this law that was specifically designed for the priesthood and they transferred it to the general population and said that everybody needs to do this. And this really, I think, confuses our understanding not only of scripture, but also of Jesus, because what happens, unfortunately, when we get into a passage like this, many commentators, many in mainstream Christianity, they will equate the tradition of the elders and God's law, and they'll basically say, you know what, Jesus has come and done away with them, because they lump them together, but we have to dig a little bit deeper like that than that, and we have to give it a little more thought and research and understand that Jesus doesn't do away in the way that many people say he does away with the law, but really he's doing away with the tradition of the elders. And we'll see that more here in this passage, but I'm going to show you other passages where this happens as well. And that's what I mean when I say that it helps us interpret scripture. It helps us understand things because it is it's too simplistic to just say, he's doing away with everything <laughs> that was done in the Old Testament. Because then you get into a whole lot of confusion. Um, and I didn't really plan on going into this, but that's why there is so much confusion about what is or isn't allowed in the Christian walk. That's why you can go to so many places, uh, whether it's you want to call it progressive Christianity, red letter Christianity, whatever you want to call it, and there's confusion, you know, what can Christians participate in? What can't they participate in? It's because if you essentially teach that Jesus has done away with the entire Old Testament or the commands of the Old Testament, that's where a lot of the rules come from. Um, or there's a principle that's applied that many people use that, well, if it was in the Old Testament and Jesus reaffirms it in the New Testament, that's how we know. But there's a problem there too because there's a lot of things in the Old Testament that are absolutely grotesque that Jesus does not 
reaffirm in the New Testament. Bestiality is an easy example to point to. So we cannot use that principle to say that only the things that are reiterated in the New Testament are what is still binding. It is just too simplistic. Because, like I said, just with bestiality as an example, Jesus never spoke against bestiality. Paul never spoke against bestiality. No one in the New Testament ever spoke against it. So we have to be able to distinguish what is still binding and what isn't. And we have to understand what Jesus does do away with and what Jesus doesn't do away with. Let's read verses of you hypocrites as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Those are some scathing remarks from Jesus towards the religious leaders of the time. And I would say these are not just the words that Jesus has for the leaders of the time, but these are the exact same words that Jesus would have for any Christian throughout history that has elevated tradition to the same level as God's commands. And so it'd be just as true for us today what he says to those religious leaders, he would say to us as well if we were to do that. Now don't get me wrong, traditions aren't bad. People can have traditions. I think we probably all have them. The problem arises when we elevate traditions to the same level as God's commands. And I will give some, uh, albeit they are going to be kind of obvious, I will give some modern examples that are happening today in the body um, at least for sure in America. I can't speak for other countries, but they are traditions that have been elevated. And so what does Jesus say exactly? He says that all who do this practice of elevating traditions are hypocrites. And then he goes on to quote from Isaiah, but that word hypocrites, that Greek word, um, excuse me, the Greek word for vain literally means uh, useless. So this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me. And that's what happens when in the body of Christ, in the church, when we elevate these traditions and we force them upon people when really they should be nothing more than a preference, it's vanity. Jesus is telling them and he's telling us that if you do that and you lay an unnecessary burden upon your brother or sister, it's useless when it comes to proper worship. So in an effort to add to their worship, they essentially subtracted from it. And they placed an unnecessary burden upon the people of God. And that's ultimately what they were trying to do. They, they had the Torah, and they had all these commands from God. And if you read Psalm 119, what you find is that God's law is perfect and wonderful and amazing. David just over and over and over is talking about how good God's law was. And they needed to just accept it for what it was. But what they did was they said, I'm scared I'm going to break it. And so I'm going to add these other things. I'm going to add some fences around my life to make sure I don't cross that line. And that is not necessarily a bad thing. The problem arises when we make those fences law. 
when we make those fences as if they are commands directly from God. And so, how have they abandoned the commandment of God? In verse 8, Jesus tells them, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. First, by this addition of traditions, they violate Torah. They violate God's law. Deuteronomy 4.2 reads, You must not add to the word that I am commanding you, and you shall not take away from it in order to keep the commands of Yahweh your God that I am commanding you to observe. And the reason God said that is because he knew his law was perfect. He knew that his law was good. He knew that his law was holy, and he knew that his law was spiritual. That's straight from Romans. So he knew that nothing needed to be added and nothing needed to be subtracted. Secondly, they nullify God's commands by their traditions. We will see this much more in depth here in a few verses. But throughout God's law, throughout his Torah, he does give specific rules when it comes to food. All right? And there were items, according to God, that were food, and there were items, according to God, that were not food. And they were allowed to eat the items that were food and not the items that weren't food. Um, and just so you know, bread was food. Okay? Bread was food. And it was good, according to God. But according to this tradition, if you were to eat bread with un unwashed hands, you were eating bread with defiled hands. And if you ate bread with defiled hands, the defilement of your hand transfers to the bread, which you then ingest. And because you ingest it, you then become defiled. And we know this to be true because this exact same story we find in the book of Matthew, Matthew 15. And at the end of the entire passage, essentially, this is what Jesus says. These are the things that defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile a person. So how were they um, leaving the commandment of God? God said bread is good. God said you can eat bread. They said if you don't wash your hands, bread is now bad. Bread is now unclean. And if you eat it, you're unclean. You're defiled. And so they were not only elevating traditions to the level of God's commands, but they were nullifying God's commands with their traditions. Even though God said you could eat bread, bread is good, they said, well, yeah, but if your hands are unwashed, it's no longer good. I know what God said, but it's no longer good, and it's no longer clean. And unfortunately, it gets even worse than that. Let's read verses 9 through 13. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mothers, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. 
Jesus now states that they completely ignore the commands of God for their tradition. In fact, he says they're experts at it. The language he uses there when he says you have a fine way of rejecting God's law, it's, it's, it's a bit of sarcasm coming from Jesus. Uh, I think some of the translations even say, you are experts or you have an expert way of leaving the commands of God. And it makes it even worse that these are supposed to be the teachers of the law. These are supposed to be the people that teach God's people what God has to say. And yet Jesus says that they have a fine way of rejecting the law of God. Verse 10 where he says, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. These are quotations from Exodus 12, Deuteronomy 5.16, Exodus 21.17, and Leviticus 29. To honor mother and father was a well-established command in the Torah. There's no denying that. In fact, it was a capital offense for the one who curses their mother or father. God took it so seriously that you are to honor your mother and father that if you curse them, God said you are to be put to death. That's how seriously God views this command. Yet we see that in this time, the religious leaders and the people followed along, that they have a tradition where they have created a loophole, a loophole in their minds but not a loophole in the eyes of God. Verse 11 and 12, Jesus references the Korban rule. And this is important. This is where they really stomp on the law of God for their traditions. This is where they try to create a loophole. So that, that word Korban is a Hebrew term referring to something consecrated as a gift to God and thus not available for ordinary. The Korban rule was where someone could take their riches, could take whatever they have, and get it in money form, and they would essentially consecrate it or dedicate it to God by giving it to the temple. But they wouldn't actually use it in the temple. They'd just kind of hold on to it. And so when it came time to honor mother and father or to take care of mother and father, probably when they were elders and, you know, needed some help and needed some money and things like that, the individual could look at them and say, I'm sorry, whatever I would have given you or whatever I would have had to help you, I've given to God. The biggest problem is tradition tells us that when their parents pass away, they could go back and take it back, and then they would have it back in their hands. That is the Korban rule. And that is why Jesus is so upset about it, because they think they've created a loophole. Meanwhile, God sees their hearts. They make void the word of God with their traditions. That's exactly what he says. They have created their own religious system apart from God's Torah, apart from what God has to say. And these are just two examples. So we have the example of the defiled hands and how they nullify what God has said about food. 
And then we have the Korban rule where they use that to nullify the command to honor father and mother. But it says you have many ways that you do this and many such things you do. So these are two obvious examples, but Jesus essentially says you do it all the time. And I think that would be my ultimate warning to us is we need to make sure we're not doing that. And not just to us, but to any Christian throughout the world. We have to make sure that we aren't nullifying the commands of God for our traditions or with our traditions. And so I would like to revisit, now that we've gone through the passage and we can see what's happening here, we can see that Jesus is not doing away with the law, but instead upholding the law, and he's doing away with these man-made traditions that nullify God's law. I would like to revisit one of the points that I brought up at the beginning. Um, really, it's two points, but I'm going to combine them. And that's Jesus' relationship with the law, uh, but also how this is, helps us interpret other scriptures. And then after that, we'll get into application. And what we have to understand, and many have to, and throughout church history, this has been neglected, is uh, Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was a law keeper. He was a Torah observer. And we see this here in Mark 7, but we'll see it in some other places as well. And this is where we can see not only his relationship, but I will walk through a couple other passages where we can use the, what we've learned here in Mark 7 to help us um, learn from some other passages. So if you could turn to Matthew 19. I'm not going to read the entire passage. I can kind of tell you what's going on here. But Matthew 19, verses 3 through 6, I'll go ahead and read that now. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So again, they come to Jesus and, and they have a question. And you have to understand the tradition of the time to understand the question. And the question is, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, why would they ask that? For any reason, for any cause. Can we do this? And the question is because during the time, there were two different teachings on divorce, essentially. There was the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. And Hillel was very loose with what one person could divorce their spouse for, what the men could divorce the wife for. And Hillel essentially taught that you could divorce your wife for almost any reason, for almost any circumstance. And here's a few examples that we learned from history that you, under the teaching of Hillel, were allowed to divorce your wife. If she spoiled or burnt dinner, if she went with unbound hair, or if she spoke to men in the streets. And so that's why they come to him and they ask, is, is this lawful? 
is this good, what we're being taught? Can we divorce our wives for any reason whatsoever? If she burns my toast, am I good to go? That's why the question is asked the way it is. The group wanted clarification on whether the teaching of Hillel was correct. And what does Jesus do? Does Jesus say, well, actually, you know, I'm going to implement something new. No. Where does he turn their eyes? What does he say? He turns their eyes to the Torah, to God's law. Have you not read? He goes back to Genesis. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And then he lays out the guidelines. And he says, they're no longer two flesh, but one. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. That is the standard. And I know that's a hard one because there's lots of things that have happened. And I'm not here to debate that or make my point on that. My point is this. They had a tradition of the time and they nullified the law of God by it. Their tradition told them they could divorce for any reason whatsoever. Burnt toast, unbound hair. I can get out of there. Jesus says, nope, nope. That's not what God said. That's what you say. That's what man says, but that's not what God says. So there's another example where it looks like, you know, he, he, he might be doing away with something, but really he's only doing away with man's tradition. Let's go to Matthew 12, a few chapters back, and we'll see another example of this. Matthew 12, 9 through 14. And we actually kind of got to see an example of this, what we're about to read um, a few weeks ago when Tim preached and he talked about a healing on the Sabbath and a man was miraculously healed and all the religious leaders of the time, all they could think about was the dude picking up his mat and walking. And uh, we essentially have the same thing going on here. 9 through 14. He went on from there and entered their synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which, of, which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him on how to destroy them. And so we see again here that Jesus is asked about a right interpretation of the law, of the Torah. And they ask, is it lawful? Is it lawful to heal someone on the Sabbath? And this one is incredibly sad. It's the same thing, like I said, in the passage that Tim preached through. We're going to actually cover another one here shortly, or at least I'll talk about it. This one's incredibly sad, and, and, I, and I fear that even today it happens, but they had weaponized the Sabbath. So something that was originally created 
to help man out, to give us rest, to refresh our souls, to give us time to focus and worship on God, happen is, again, remember those fences I talk about that they elevate to the commands of God. Here's what the Torah says about Sabbath. Don't do your ordinary work. That's essentially the command. I'm paraphrasing, but that is essentially the command. Don't do your ordinary work. Well, they, they again, didn't want to cross that line, so they added all kinds of fences and said, you know what, we can't do this, can't do this, can't do this, can't do this. And one of those fences was we, we can't help people. You know what, because if I go to my neighbor and I help him lift a couch, I'm working. Yeah. And God said, don't work. Or if I heal someone, I'm creating the word, the word oftentimes used in the Old Testament for work was creating. And so I can't create, I can't restore health on the Sabbath. And that was never God's intention for the Sabbath. They weaponized it to the point to where they couldn't even help people. And, and I've, I've seen that even to, in today's world with people who observe the Sabbath, that I could share a story even from here, but, but essentially, I can't work, I can't help people on the Sabbath. But that's not what Jesus says. And in a couple examples, Matthew 12, if you just go a little bit further back, his disciples are walking through the field and they pick some grain to eat it. And people see this and they think, his disciples are picking grain. They're working. What are they doing? And he, he takes them back to two examples from the Old Testament when David and his men are hungry. They're about to perish. They're so hungry. And they eat the bread of presence. That's actually not lawful for them to eat. But it was better to show mercy than to not. And that's the same thing we have here. Jesus says, that's ridiculous. Of course you can do good on the Sabbath. That is not what God said. God's command was not don't do good on the Sabbath. God's command was don't do your ordinary work. And so Jesus, when he's asked about a right interpretation, says your traditions have messed this up. Of course it is good to do good on the Sabbath. Another example is in Luke 13. We have almost the exact same situation. There is a woman that has had a disabling spirit for 18 years. And she gets healed. And all they want to talk about is him doing it on the Sabbath. And that is incredibly sad. And that is something that we have to make sure that we don't do in our lives. We've got to make sure it's something we don't do here at Wellspring. It's something we've got to make sure we don't do as a body throughout the world. Because it does happen. People will take something and they'll say, you know, I really want to help that people, but God said this. As if God is going to be upset at us for loving our neighbor or helping someone. But that's exactly what they did right here. He reestablishes the heart of the Sabbath. Because what we're told in the New Testament is when you help others, when you love your neighbor, you're actually worshiping God. You are offering a sacrifice with your life. 
And that was the intention of the Sabbath, for us to rest and be refreshed and have a time of dedicated worship to God. When, when you love your neighbor or when you heal on the Sabbath as Jesus was doing, he was ultimately worshiping God. And I could go through, you know, many other examples, uh, but these are some of the examples where we can see that traditions were trumping on the law of God and even at times were being weaponized so that they didn't have to help people. And we see that Jesus upholds God's law many times. In Mark 7, when they basically are asking this question, he says, no, you violate God's law. Here, in Matthew 12, he says, yes, it's lawful to do good. Of course it is. On the question about divorce and marriage, he turns their eyes to Genesis. So he's not doing away with God's Torah, God's commands, but instead he's doing away with these traditions that were elevated to the commands of God. So I think I've been able to move through quickly enough. I'd actually like to move on to some application for today, and then after that we'll cover one more passage where I'll make my final point. And so this warning that Jesus lays out in Mark 7 that, hey, you need to make sure you don't elevate your traditions, unfortunately, the church throughout history has not really heeded that warning very well. And so whether it's in the first century, whether it's in the 500s, the 1500s, or even today, we can pull out example after example after example where people said, yeah, I know what God said we should do, but my tradition tells me I can't. And I'm going to go through some examples today that are happening. Now, these aren't necessarily happening at Wellspring. In fact, none of the examples I'm going to use have happened at Wellspring that I'm aware of. But I want to use them to show that it can and does happen. And we need to be on the watch for it to make sure it doesn't infect us. And, and I've shared this recently um, where... I was, I believe I was somewhat fortunate uh, to not grow up in the church. Now, ultimately, if I could go back, it would be different, but obviously that's not an option. But the advantage I had not growing up in the church is, um, you know, I was in my 20s when I started going to church. And so, you know, I uh, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, attending church, and we would do something, or I'd visit a church, and they would do something, and I'd be able to turn to the person next to me and say, why do we do that? And they'd either have a good answer and they'd be able to explain from scripture why we do something or they'd go, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. And though I tell my boys all the time, we can't just know what we believe, but we have to know why we believe it. Yes. And what has happened with some traditions is they've been around for hundreds of years one of the ones we're going to talk about um, has been around for hundreds of years. And so generation after generation of families have been attending church. Um, and they don't know why they do something. Actually, a story was I, I was able to meet with uh, some people last week and talk about uh, the Bible and scripture and the feasts and everything. And uh, sh she told a great story, and it, it really illustrates the point. Um, I'll probably mess it up a little bit, but... Um, there, there's a couple and, um, a newly married couple and, uh, the wife is preparing ham 
and she cuts off the two ends of the ham, you know, before she cooks it. I'm sure some of you guys have heard this story. And they cook it and, you know, love it or whatever. And the husband's like, yeah, oh, thank you for doing that. It's always so good when you cut off the ends of the ham. And, and he's like, but um, why do you cut off the ends of the ham? And she's like, I don't know. My, my mom always did. I'll, I'll have to ask her. It's just how we've always prepared the ham. So she goes to her mom and asks her, hey, why, do you, why do you cut off the ends of the ham? And, I mean, what does it do to make it so good? And she's like, I don't know. I, that's just what my mom always did. So, so they went to the grandma and they asked her, I said, hey, we know it makes the ham really good when you cut off the ends of it, but we're wondering why you do it. What is it that makes it so good? And she says, because my pan was too small. <laughs> but they just did it to do it. They thought it was something that was actually making the meal better. But really, it was just something that they did without asking the question of why. And then it went on generation after generation. And then they come to find out that, oh, there actually wasn't any use there. So here are some examples that are happening today in the body that I want to touch on. And again, I don't, I'm not aware of these happening at Wellspring, but they, they do illustrate the possibility of it and something that we need to be on the lookout for. And so there is a denomination that has a certain doctrine that I'm going to call a tradition because I believe Scripture actually negates what they have to say. And I pulled this directly from their website, but they are a large OU that you have the Holy Spirit. And here's what their website says. The baptism of believers in the Holy Spirit is witnessed by the initial physical sign of speaking with other tongues as the Spirit of God gives them utterance. And they use Acts 2.4 as their citation for their belief. There's two major problems with this tradition. And that's what it is. The first is if you haven't spoken in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit. You don't. And I'll admit it, I have not done that. And so that, according to them, I'm, I have never had the Holy Spirit because I've never demonstrated that physical sign of having the Holy Spirit. The second problem and the largest problem with this is if you read 1 Corinthians 12, 27 through 31, Paul clearly establishes that not everyone speaks in tongues. He says, is everyone a teacher? Is everyone an apostle? Does everyone speak in tongues? Does everyone perform uh, works of healing? And his essential answer is no. We're one body with different gifts. Some are teachers. Some are, can speak in tongues. Some are interpreters. Some are healers. Some are servers or administrators. And that what's, that's what makes the body so great. So Paul clearly says, no, that's not true. And so I talked about the people of the first century throwing an unnecessary burden on the people of God. And in my opinion, that's what this is through that denomination. And I've been there early on in Christianity when, when I was seeing this teaching and things like this where the only way you're a real Christian is if you're doing these miraculous signs. And it was a burden because I was like, I haven't spoken in tongues. I haven't healed anybody. I haven't done anything miraculous. I must not be saved. And I did, I questioned it, and, and that happens to a lot of people. Now, might someone speak in tongues or do a work of healing? Of course, God says it happens. 
But does God ever say that you're only a Christian if it happens? Not one time ever. But this denomination says that's true. The next tradition is called King James Onlyism, and this is the one that's been going on for like hundreds of years. Kenny probably used to be one. Maybe not used to be, huh? <laughs> so King James Onlyism is the belief that there is only one good English translation and all the others are corrupted. Now there's varying degrees of this. There are what some would consider King James preferred. So they prefer the King James, but if you want to read the ESV or NIV, you're okay. But on the far end of the spectrum, there are those that say, if you read something other than King James, you ain't saved. There really is. And so I took this straight from a church. I don't even remember the name of it. But this is from their doctrine statement on their website. And it says, furthermore, and this is where they're talking about scripture, furthermore, in view of the number of Bible translations and paraphrases available today, many of which are poorly translated and in some cases in error, we reaffirm our confidence in the King James Version of the Holy Bible as being the preserved word of God and sanction, it, and sanction its use only as the accepted text in all the services and activities of our church. And so while I agree that there are some translations out there that are pretty bad, where I don't agree is that the King James Version is the preserved word of God only. It's an absurd argument to make. And when you look into the argument, the, all the arguments they make against the other translations could be made against the King James as well. Now, is the King James a bad translation? No, it's perfectly fine. Are there some things that I think are translated better in the ESV or even the NIV, I do. But that's not what these people are saying. They're saying it's the King James or nothing. And that's one that's been around really ever since the King James came around. But when you look into the arguments and you, you know, explore what the actual belief is, um, and I can't unpack all those today, but it is really kind of a fascinating thing. Um, it just simply isn't true. There are plenty of good English translations out there. And for all y'all that aren't reading the King James today, it's okay. All right? That's another tradition that's happening today. I took that from a website of a church today. Well, I didn't take it today, but they are a church today. They'll probably be meeting tomorrow. Here's a couple more that uh, might make... A some of us uncomfortable because no one ever wants to talk about it, but it's a new one. And I understand why people don't want to talk about it. We've been talking about it for a year and a half. But this one, this one is almost to me like the Sabbath, Sabbath deal where they're weaponizing something and it's incredibly heartbreaking to me. The first is vaccinations. Most recently, a church in Atlanta, but I know there's a church in Canada that's doing the same thing, but a church in Atlanta will no longer let you go to church without a vaccination, no matter what. I took this straight from their website. You must be fully vaccinated in order to attend worship in-house. You must bring your vaccination card as proof when you arrive next week. 
Your temperature will be taken and you will need to show proof of vaccination. You must still wear your mask. This next part is the part where it's a, it's a, it's a weapon. For those who aren't able to get the vaccine for medical reasons, as well as our children 11 and under, we're asking you to enjoy our online worship experience. Reminders, no hugging, remain at your seat, practice caution. We can all have our preference on the vaccine, and I'm sure we all do. But what they have now done is they have said, you know what, if you have a medical issue or you're a child, this church is not for you. The word of God preached here in this building, mm, it's not for you. But you can watch online. You can't fellowship, but you can sit in your living room and watch what we do. And that's a tradition being elevated. There is, you're not going to find it in Scripture. And you're not going to find it in history either. We're talking about a body of Christ that went through the Black Plague. They didn't push people away for that. They even visited people who were infected. They were still meeting together. And yes, it probably led to some death. But God doesn't ever say that, you know what, gather together unless there's, you know, unless it's completely safe and there's never, ever going to be an issue. See how that's going to fly with the Christians in Afghanistan right now. Or the Christians in China. But Jesus is very clear, let the children come to me. And he's also very clear that we are to meet together. And this is heartbreaking. They have weaponized it against a certain group of people and said, church is good and church is right, but church is not for you. But on the flip side, we have the other, we have the other spectrum, the other side of the spectrum, masks. A church in Tennessee has taken this perspective He's, uh, I'm not going to mention his name, he's a pretty famous pastor. He's pretty famous because he just says outrageous things. And I think that's what he was doing here, but still, it's the same thing. Here's his quote. If they go through round two and you start showing up with all these masks and all this nonsense, I will ask you to leave, the pastor said during a service on Sunday. I will ask you to leave. I'm not playing these Democrat games up in this church. So forget the reason why you're wearing one. Who knows what the reason might be? It doesn't matter to him. Because, you know, Second Hesitations 3 says, thou shall not wear a mask to church. <laughs> you're not going to find that anywhere in Scripture. And this guy has done the same thing that the vaccination church has done. They have said that, you know what, you might have a preference of a mask, but you can't come here. This church is not for you, and that's not going to be found anywhere in Scripture. Now, does God give certain guidelines for who can or can't stay in the church? Someone's doing something, you need to talk to them, and if they don't change their behavior, they need to leave. There are those commands in Scripture. But these two things are not there. And this is a preference being elevated to the doctrine of God. I want to finish with Acts 10 and make my final point as to why it is so important that we do not elevate traditions to the same level as God's commands. 
And so here in Acts 10, we have another situation where there is a tradition that's being used as if it came straight from the mouth of God. So Acts 10, I'm going to paraphrase the story for you. You all have probably heard it before or read it before, but here's how it goes. God gives Cornelius, a God-fearer, a vision of Peter, and he essentially tells him, you need to get this guy to come talk to you. And then God gives Peter a vision of these clean and unclean animals on a sheet coming down from the sky, and this happens three times, and God tells him, kill and eat. Peter's like, no way. I have never eaten anything unclean or common. And then God tells him in this vision, do not call common what I have made clean. And then a little bit later on, three men come to Peter. That's why the sheet drops three times, right? Three men come to Peter, and they ask him to come with them. And they say, come with us to the house of Cornelius. Um, we hear that you have a word for us, a message for us. And so Cornelius is gathering up all of his friends and relatives, and they get together so that Peter shows up. And then this is where we're at, Acts 10, 28. I'm going to read the first part of the verse. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone from another nation. How unlawful it is. The ESV, the NIV, the Amplified, the King James, the New King James, the NASB, the NASB 95, all use that phrase, you know how unlawful it is. And I think that's a bad translation. Because when you look, I challenge any of you to look through the Old Testament and God's commands and show me a law that says they couldn't associate or visit Gentiles. You're not going to find it. Now, you'll find things like they couldn't intermarry, but we have that reiterated in the New Testament when, when Paul says to not be unequally yoked. But you will not find a command that says we, you can't visit or even associate with them. And that word unlawful, it's only used a couple times in the New Testament. And the other time, it's not even talking about something related to the law. It's talking about a, essentially a, a, a bad spirit. And so this word here is not the word that's used throughout Scripture for people who are violating the law or violating the Torah. And I think that's why we get to what we get to, and God ends up telling Peter what to do. I mean, God isn't telling Peter to violate his own law because God never told the Israelites that they couldn't associate or visit Gentiles. There is no such law. Now let me read Acts 10, 28 in full. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. This tradition of not visiting or associating with Gentiles had been elevated so much that God had to divinely intervene in Peter's life and teach him this lesson personally. And even after this, there were still struggles in the early church. When you read through the rest of Acts and the other epistles, there are still people that are like, hey, 
why are y'all talking to Gentiles? Why are y'all doing this? And so it was a tradition that had been around for a long time and was deeply ingrained. And there's one main reason that I wanted to make sure I got to Acts 10. And I've, I've already hit this point several times, but I want to essentially make it my final point. And if you've been keeping track, there is a common theme when traditions get elevated to an improper level. People get hurt unnecessarily. Whether it's the woman with the disabling spirit for 18 years, whether it's the Gentiles here, whether it's unvaccinated people in that Atlanta church, whether it's those children, whether it's the people having to wash their hands unnecessarily in Mark 7, you name it. Anytime these traditions get elevated to the commands of God, people get unnecessarily hurt, alienated, and neglected. And this is what I believe we must remember when looking at our traditions and the levels that they go to. We have to make sure that we don't allow this to happen because God's law is perfect. God's commands are perfect. But when we take it into our own hands and do our own thing, we alienate people unnecessarily or we throw burdens onto people unnecessarily. And that's something that we have to make sure we don't do. I'll finish with this. Acts 10, 34 and 35. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. That's God's standard of who is acceptable. And any other standard that we try to put out there that can't be found in Scripture is only going to cause damage. And it's only going to hinder the work that we need to be doing. Thankfully, God is a big God and can overcome all of our mistakes and our faults. But just as Paul says in Romans, that's not a reason to do it on purpose. And so even though God can overcome our mistakes, we need to avoid those mistakes as best we can. And we need to look at our own lives. We need to look at our lives together at Wellspring. We need to look at our lives with our brothers and sisters in Nebraska and New York and Florida and Afghanistan and China and South America, Africa. And we need to make sure that we're sticking to this right here. And we aren't inserting anything else that is going to neglect or nullify the word of God. Can you have your traditions and your preferences? You sure can. But you cannot elevate them to the same level as God's commands. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening and this time we've had together. We do thank you also for your word and the goodness of your word. We thank you that you are not a God who has left us to our own reasoning and to our own wisdom, but instead you have bestowed reasoning and guidance to us through your written word. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people of the word, that we would study the word, 
And as Colossians 3.16 says, that we would let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. So richly that we would get to the point to where we just walk it. Make that our hearts, Lord, because we know, based on your goodness, that if we can walk the way your son walked, we will do exactly what you have called us to do. So, Lord, we do pray and ask that you would continue to grow us and change us and make us more and more like your son, Jesus. And it's in his mighty name we ask these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up my heart.